today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Marvin Ryder. I don't think we've talked to him yet this new year. And talk about a couple of things, including General Motors investing in a Canadian plant to manufacture electric vans. And, of course, the Keystone Pipeline and Vice Pre- or sorry, President Biden-elect. Uh, uh, is uh, going to cancel. Uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's here now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm fine, thank you. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, where do you want to start? Let's start with the pipeline. Um, your you? thoughts. Uh, he, one of the first uh, things on his agenda as he gets in uh, for President Biden will be uh, nixing this. Uh, what does this mean for Canada? What does it mean for the energy sector? Well, it's not exactly a shock, so let me just take you back. Keystone XL yeah. Pipeline was first announced as a potential project in 2005. That's 15 years ago, and when it was announced, it was considered a win-win because Alberta would have a market for its crude, made it easier to ship it there via pipeline than using uh, train cars, and the United States was going to win because they wanted to wean themselves off quote-unquote foreign oil, even though Canada is a separate sovereign nation, we're all kind of buddies here in North America, and now that would mean you don't have to buy oil from Nigeria or Venezuela or Saudi Arabia. Win-win. And this isn't well known, Scott, but the Keystone XL project had four phases to it, three of which are done. Three phases are done, but the contentious one was phase four. This was going to have a segment built from roughly where the oil sands are in Alberta down across the American border into a hub in Nebraska. At that point, it would link up to an existing pipeline and take the crude as far south as it needed to go, say, like the Gulf. So, um, got the other three sections done. Then you started to do the environmental assessments in 2010 and 12. Uh, this information got fed to the Obama administration, whose vice president was a fellow by the name of Biden. You may have heard of him. And uh, in 2015, uh, President Obama said, I'm not liking what I'm seeing there. You've got to cross too many streams and lakes and aboriginal lands. So, no, I'm not going to let you go on with that phase four. And he canceled it. Uh, shortly thereafter, there was the election in 2016. Donald Trump became president roughly four years ago today. And one of his first acts as president was to change President uh, Obama's assessment and say, go build it. So they started to. And, and it's unfair to say that in this phase four, some sections are complete. Not enough that oil can flow, uh, but you know there are some sections that were done. Uh, in the spring of 2020, sensing that maybe Mr. Trump's time in office was coming to an end and possibly a Democrat might take control and thus cancel the project, the strategy of the Alberta government was build, build, build just as much as mm. you possibly can because mm-hmm. if this pipeline was 90% done, how could they cancel it? They couldn't, they couldn't at that point do it. So build, build, build. And that worked really well. Uh, the, the provincial government of Alberta put in $1.5 billion of cash and a loan for up to $6 billion more to help. But in July, the Supreme Court tossed a monkey wrench into this as it was reviewing one of the sections that said you didn't do your consultations correctly. So stop building and go back and do the work. And that's why today we have an unfinished pipeline with with so little of it now in the ground in the critical areas that Mr. Biden can make this announcement. It's no shock that he's going to do this. Now, is it going to stick? I don't know. I guarantee you one of the first things for discussion between the Biden administration and Canada once he gets sworn in is to revisit this. And, and I think if I was 
the prime minister or the energy minister, I'd be saying, are you against pipelines completely, or is it this route? Could we propose a different route? Could we adjust in some ways? Is there some way we can bring this? Because the benefit is still there, United States. You can get oil from Canada, uh, better oil than the fracking that you're doing, and it's a safe, secure supply. But I have no idea how that discussion is going to go. Is this too little too late? I mean, you know, he's talking about making this uh, a priority, and he's inaugurated tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it's too little too late. Keep in mind, the administration in power today, today on Tuesday, is still pro-pipeline. And and these people uh, who will be leading his cabinet are not in that position. Now, I guarantee you, as Biden has been making these announcements of, uh, I'll call it his cabinet-to-be, uh, overtures have been made, and I guarantee you, Mr. Trudeau has spoken to Mr. Biden about some of these things. So I think, and 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 I don't claim to, you know, we know more about Mr. Trump than we do about Mr. Biden at this point. But I think he's trying. Mr. Biden is trying to definitely uh, position himself as being a different president than mm-hmm. Trump. And so many of his first day initiatives are going to be around a green economy. And there is this concern: Does building a pipeline match your idea of a green economy? I think it does in the sense that trying to be green by the year 2050 is great, but we've also got people driving cars today that need oil today. And if we're looking 30 years in the future, well, you know, you could build a pipeline and run it for 20 or 25 of those years uh, and, and still meet needs. So I think there's this kind of a conversation going on. And, and just because um, Mr. Biden is a more reasonable person, he is more about logic, I think there is some possibility of reversing this, but in the meantime, if I'm one of those communities that the pipeline was going to go through, I thought there would be construction jobs, I thought there would be operational jobs, I'm not happy about any of this, and certainly Alberta's not. I I can't even tell you that the money they've put in, they'll be able to get back out. Billions of taxpayer dollars may have just disappeared overnight. Uh, and again, here it's again. It seems like one extreme to the other. Uh, y- you know what what happens next? Um, it was interesting. I was watching some U.S. news coverage last night, and they talked about some of the things that Biden was going to do on his first uh, the first hundred days in the agenda. And there's all kinds of things in regard to uh, the past president, but it didn't really mention. It didn't seem like Keystone was uh, was on that list. It doesn't seem to be a priority. No, what would have been on that list probably. I didn't see the same report that you're quoting from. But the Paris Climate Accord, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Mr. Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord, and now Mr. Biden says, "I want to get back in." That's partly good news for Justin Trudeau because many of the things that Justin has been trying to do over the last few years, people have pushed back and said, "Well, why are you doing that? If the United States doesn't want to do that, can we really afford to go on our own?" So to have both countries marching somewhat in sync is great news. But Keystone just doesn't. It doesn't really play on the American broad audience. It really only affects some very relatively unpopulated states, by the way, states that did not vote for Mr. Biden. They voted for Mr. Trump. So if Mr. Biden doesn't necessarily feel he owes them anything, but it, it will come up. And, and this is where I think, again, uh, we'll see what our negotiating skills are when we send our team down there and see what common ground we might be able to find on this. Marvin, we didn't even get a chance to ask you about GM, so I'm going to put that off. We're going to ask you about that uh, in the future. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Glad to be with you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked about many aspects and angles of COVID-19, this global pandemic, how it has changed lives, how it will continue to change lives once we get out of the other end of this. Uh, McGill University opening a, uh, along with a private company, opening a lab in Montreal that will let consumers get a taste for technologies that may transform retail in the current and post-COVID-19 pandemic world, giving McMac, uh, McGill rather faculty students a chance to re- do research and testing in a real retail environment. To talk more about all of this, Maxime Cohen is with us, assistant, or sorry, associate professor, faculty management, and the co-director of the McGill Retail Innovation Lab with McGill University and with us now. Maxime, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So uh, break it down in layman's terms. Exactly what are you doing here? What, what, what exactly is the purpose of this lab? So we were just opened a new lab called the Retail Innovation Lab at McGill University at the Ben Salon School of Retail Management. And this is kind of a unique partnership between McGill University and Kushtar, the, the, the convenience store retail chain owned by Circle K. And we're opening a store on campus, open to the public, where we are trying and testing a lot of different new technologies in order to like, make the customer journey better. And give us an example of that. So an example is inside the store, there is a small part of the store, which is a frictionless store, which is actually the first frictionless store in Canada, similar to the Amazon Go model, where customers can download an app. With the app on a smartphone, they can enter the store and they can pick up which item they want, take them and go outside the store without having to go through any checkout process. So everything is frictionless. There is no interaction. There is no contact in an in, in era of, you know, social distancing and uh, maximizing, maximizing social distance and minimizing your time inside the store. This is like the perfect technology to, to be used to. How has COVID-19 changed what you're doing? Or was this created as a result of the global pandemic? Because, again, we've seen that a lot of these technologies have been with us for a while. It's just we're, we're very apprehensive to use them. And then all of a sudden, boom, the pandemic's here and we're forced to use them and they take off. So uh, how has the pandemic changed your view of so all of this? This project actually was only like into the talking in 2017. So that's mm-hmm. something we really wanted to do it before even the pandemic hits. As you said, though, the pandemic is kind of a big, you know, acceleration type of uh, wake-up call for retailers that they need to do something about it. So it, it, it kind of uh, emphasized even more the need and we need to do something ASAP. And as a result of the pandemic, we've been trying to adapt a little bit the technologies we're going to be trying to be able to offer some value in terms of, you know, minimizing contact, maximizing social distancing. So that's something where technology can help quite a bit. Uh, especially in this province, there's been lots of concern over the small retailer, the individual mom and pop sort of situations. They're kind of they're kind of getting lost in the sauce while the big box stores uh, are, are staying open and such. What will this do to bricks, uh, brick and mortar stores? What will this change coming out the other end? Will a lot of this stay with us? So basically, we will be able to test a lot of different types of technologies and some types of methods to improve the customer journey. And because it's a collaboration with uh, McGill University, 
we will actually make all this knowledge and all our research findings publicly available. We will publish academic papers, we'll speak at conferences. So those other little stores will have access to our learnings and our knowledge, and they can also potentially apply the technique that works the best for their own businesses. Uh, has the attitude of Canadians changed on all of this as a result of the pandemic? Are they going to be reluctant to change, or are they now embracing change? No, I think you're raising a good point. I mean, people are definitely looking at a different angle the way they are shopping in physical stores. Typically, people go less often and buy larger baskets. Now, for convenience retail, like convenience stores, like it's still the same type of utility. You know, people go like for a little thing. So I think people will be very appreciative to have a process that makes their customer journey much more efficient, much more pleasant, and also much more secure. Does this, uh, is there an advantage for this for larger companies or companies that might have more financial backing? Or will this be practical enough for small mom and pop uh, situations to become involved in? No, I think definitely there is, a, there is a small advantage for larger companies who have deeper pockets, obviously, because there is a lot of testing of those new technologies to see what works, what doesn't work, how can we improve it. So having like deeper pockets is always beneficial, obviously. But as we said, because we do it in, 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 with university as far as research is concerned, we'll, our wonderful goal is to disseminate this knowledge so we can shortcut the process for smaller companies and make them save time and money. A lot of people, uh, especially as this pandemic stretches on in, you know, a year now, uh, whereas in the first few months, uh, I think many thought, oh, this is a, a minor glitch and then we'll continue on. But obviously with time, uh, there's been more and more change. There's been more and more adjustment that's had to be made. People have had to be nimble and, uh, you know, pivots another uh, key word that's used a lot, uh, during all of this. Um, do you find that this will, are, or do you find people asking you a lot what life will look like coming out the other end? And if so, what do you say to those people about what life will like look like coming out of this pandemic and how some of this may be sped up as a result? I see. I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's a little bit beyond the scope of my expertise. I'm happy to, like, you know, shed, mm -hmm. like, share some thoughts about it. But I'm a professor of, uh, you know, artificial intelligence applying to the retail sector. But definitely, I think and I hope and I want to be optimistic on that one, that uh, there'll be a vaccine. A lot of people will be vaccinated. And hopefully down the road, life will be closer to like the normal we had before the pandemic. At least that's I want to stay optimistic on this. Uh, is how do the students feel about this and having this lab and this uh, hands-on opportunity uh, to deal with uh, what is happening currently in the world? Yeah, I think students are very excited about it. Like, I mean, all the students I talked to like showed a lot of excitement. Some of them are a little bit like disappointed that they are not on campus to go to the store on a daily basis because you know all yeah. classes are remote at the moment. But they are very excited that McGill is part of this uh, you know, this opportunity. The lab will be also used for experiential learning. So there'll be some courses and some case studies that will be done inside the lab. So we'll give kind of a very good opportunity for students to learn some hands-on experience and to apply some of the techniques and see how the technology involves in the real world. But they're also excited to like shop in a store, like, you know, to experience this new modern state-of-the-art type of uh, facility. Maxime Cohen has been with us, Associate Professor, Faculty of Management and the Co-Director of the McGill Re uh, Retail Innovation Lab at McGill University, talking about how retail will change 
and how it has been changing both before and after uh, the pandemic. Maxime, thank you so much for the time and insight. Good luck with all of this. Thank you very much. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Let's go to the phone see what's going on. Robert is there. Robert, what are your thoughts? Yes, good afternoon. Uh, my thoughts concerning the uh, politicians then is that uh, when we vote them out of office, they go to get appointed to either a hydro company, control board, or uh, hospitals, or... Uh, workers' compensation, they get appointed to these different boards, although they're not qualified in any manner to operate or uh, be part of it, because they're politicians, they're guaranteed these positions. I don't think that's right, and this is one of the problems with our health care. Thank you for allowing me to voice the opinion. You are more than welcome, Robert. And anytime you want to do the same, 905-645-3221, star 9900 uh, on your cell. Uh, it's fascinating. And, and I, I noticed a, a column in uh, the National Post by John Iveson on the same thing as, uh, as people search for a leader that uh, represents them, no matter what your political uh, belief is. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada has cleared the Boeing 737 MAX for flight. This is after nearly two years of the global grounding. It announced Monday it's completed its nearly two-year review of the aircraft and has issued an airworthiness directive detailing a series of uh, changes that uh, must be made before the MAX can return to Canadian airspace. To talk more about all of this, Keith Mackey is with us, aviation expert, Mackey International. He is on the air now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, you're welcome, Scott. Glad to be with you. So where does this leave the Max 8 in Canada now? They've uh, completed their, uh, Transport Canada completed their review. Uh, Then they're talking about a series of changes. So do there have to be more changes made before it can fly again? Where exactly are we here? Well, Transport Canada, in my opinion, did some very smart things. They didn't just rely on the FAA's review of the airplane. They did their own, and they did a very detailed study, and they came up with some different conclusions. Uh, they decided that the one of the problems was you can get multiple alarms going off simultaneously in the cockpit. And when you're trying to solve a problem, having alarm bells and whistles sounding is not helpful. So they're coming up with a new system so that this won't be a problem. The other thing they're doing is they're doing a lot more training for the pilots. So the pilots, I'm sure, are going to be very well trained in the airplane. And I think when we see the airplane back in service with uh, in Canada on the, the 1st of February, it's going to work out very well. So these changes that have been made, you talk, you gave example of the alarms going off in the cockpit. Are, are these changes that Transport Canada will make? Are these changes that Boeing will make to the planes that are improved in Canada? Or does this go, will, will they take these changes and, and maybe do it across their fleet? Well, I really don't know. These are things that the uh, DOT came up with that will be incorporated in all Canadian airplanes. Now, it's very likely that other countries will follow suit, and this may become a standard for the industry. I certainly hope so. And uh, how is or how would this information be received from the manufacturer, from Boeing? Well, this 
is something that uh, uh, Transport Canada has worked out with Boeing, and uh, it will be incorporated in the Canadian airplanes. So what happens now, Keith? What, how long will it take to get these things in the air? Obviously, uh, they've been sitting somewhere for a couple of years. What do you have to do to a plane to get it back up in the air? Well, Boeing has built about 800 of these airplanes. They delivered about 400, and 400 have just been parked for the duration there's going to be a procedure that will have to be done. Each airplane will have to be inspected uh, both statically and dynamically to be sure everything's working properly, and then it'll be returned to service. I'm sure they'll be doing test flying on each one before they return it to service. But actually, uh, the first commercial flight of the airplane was December 29th in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Brazil by that time had done, my understanding is, almost 700 flights using the MAX in Brazil between uh, Porto Alegre and Sao Paulo, and it's still in service with Gaul Airlines down there. My understanding is the Chinese are flying the airplane now, so uh, the Canadians aren't actually taking the lead, and really they shouldn't. So how does this fit in with where the airline industry is now, Keith? Like, obviously, loads are low now. How do they fit all of these planes into the system, even though there was a demand for them? Well, we know that there was a demand for them, because at the time of the grounding, there was a tremendous demand for air travel. And the the, the MAX was integral to fulfilling that demand. And when the, the MAX didn't happen, when it was grounded, it really uh, hurt the capacity of the airlines. Now it's an entirely different situation. People aren't flying because they can't, because they're afraid to, because of COVID. And, of course, there will be a certain stigma attached to the MAX for a period of time. So I think this is an advantage for the airlines because they can phase the airplane in very slowly. For example, WestJet's going to be operating from, I think, uh, Calgary to Toronto. And they do six flights a day. Three of them will be on the MAX. So if you don't want to ride on a MAX, you might have to wait a couple hours for the next flight. But WestJet will certainly accommodate you. All you've got to do is indicate you don't want to ride on a MAX. On the other hand, if you do, I'm sure they can find you a seat. So, how? What do you think customers going to customer reaction is going to be here, Keith? Do you think there are going to be a large amount of people who do not want to fly on this plane right away, or do you think, ah, you know, the testing's done, it's been two years, let's go? Well, I think that'll be a factor. The fact that it's been so well tested, and so many errors have been uncovered, and everybody that's been concerned with the airplane and the grounding that have been fixed. Uh, and the airplanes have been flying for a period of time now, so I think gradually people will lose their fear, and eventually, probably a couple years from now, people won't even know the difference. Keith, how has this changed the way we build planes and the way we we get them out into service? What will happen with the next version of the Max 8 or the next big plane to come out? How will How will the approval process be different? Well, the way the FAA works is they 
designate people to do all sorts of tasks. For example, if you want to get your private pilot's license, you can meet the qualifications, and in the U.S., the FAA will designate an examiner. He doesn't work for the FAA. He works for himself, but he has to meet the FAA standards. And when you demonstrate that you have the piloting capability to fulfill the requirements of the certificate, he'll issue one. And it's the same thing in the production end. Uh, engineering companies will be designated to approve uh, designs, and when they do, it's generally just fine. Historically, in the industry, that's the way it's been done, and it's still being done. Now, manufacturers also had this capability. Boeing, unfortunately, abused the capability that they had. The FAA did a poor job of monitoring them, and because they, neither of the FAA nor Boeing did their job, the defect snuck through and mm. made it into production airplanes. Keith Mackey's been with us, aviation expert, Mackey International, talking about Canada clearing uh, the way for the Boeing 737 MAX to get into Canadian skies. Keith, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. You too. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.